Well, good morning. Well, take your Bibles and turn with me uh, again in our study of 1 Corinthians. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and starting in verse 26. This morning, I want to just begin by reading the passage, at least the first part of the passage. And I want you to be thinking about the ideas of status. Status. God's Word is addressing how the world views status, and then we'll see how God views it. Paul writing to the Corinthians, first century church. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Why? So that no one may boast before him. We are incurably status conscious. Uh, One of the sad realities of being human is that we naturally uh, judge one another unconsciously with kind of where do we fit socially? Are they more impressive in some way, prettier, smarter, richer, or am I? Kind of an ugly truth of being human that we just kind of subconsciously or deliberately register those things. Is it that we, we long to fit among a certain type of person? Is it that we long to be uh, superior to someone? Is, it, is that what causes us to, to essentially pre, pretend to be someone we aren't? Or uh, could we possibly use social media to kind of, you know, jack up our image a couple notches or rungs higher than maybe the way we actually feel? So Paul the Apostle here writes about this stuff bluntly 2,000 years ago. Um, basically saying that God doesn't care about what the world says is status. In fact, God's tendency is to flip the script so that, like, percentage-wise, there are more in the lower to middle class, if you use human terms, who actually are part of the family of God. And God gives his greatest spiritual privileges to the nobodies like us, to to the regular people of the world. And so God wants to correct and transform our crazy thinking about social things, social status, so that we begin to think about our status with God, that that is the ultimate Priority. So that's where he's going here. So what, I don't know if you're a person who tends to be intimidated by those above you, or if you just, if you, some of you, you're trying to to to, to rise that, raise that, uh, you're standing in the social ladder or whatever. But just just to realize that nobody impresses God, of course, and and God sees us a certain way, and He calls those who tend to be the the foolish, the 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 one that the world does not admire. So not the wise. Verse uh, 27, the wise were the philosophical elite. 
and then not the influential, they were the political class, the political elite. They held the office. And, and, and not the noble birth, in other words, probably referring to, um, of course, family lines, but uh, they have money. Uh, they have social standing. Now, he noticed it says not many, so there were some. Surely there were, there were some. But fewer who came to faith in those upper classes by human measurement. Now, I know as Christians, sometimes we're, it's good. We're, we're, we're glad when we find uh, or hear about someone who maybe holds a high political office or they're a, a star athlete or something who uh, claims Christ as Savior. It's great. In fact, if they can use their platform for uh, sharing the gospel or just giving glory to God, that's, that's a great thing. But the point would be that in no way do any of these elements of status contribute to their spiritual standing with God. In fact, the point seems to be it's even more remarkable. We should be that much more grateful because it's remarkable when someone who has so much of that celebrity actually would put their faith in Christ because having that status often blinds a person to their own needs. It often is accompanied with a a high degree of, of maybe arrogance. So instead it says God chose the foolish, the weak, the lowly, the despised, the thing, things that are not. There's like five descriptions of, of, of us all, you know. Uh, it's, it's descriptions like the word lowly is, is actually like a slave type of word in, in that first century. In fact, I like the one where it says the things that are not. In other words, that's the person's, people who basically don't register. You, you don't even notice them. They're like the invisible people. They just, they just don't have many friends. It's just like you don't even think about them being there. And he chose them to, it says, shame, uh, verses 27 and 8. Shame the others, what does that mean? Or to confound the others? Or at the end it says to nullify or, or bring to nothing. What, what is that saying? It's saying that sometimes it is the least educated person who is a believer in Christ and has these incredible spiritual insights. Least educated, could be a very young person. It's it's remarkable how young people catch on. Sometimes you'll see it in the pick of the week, the little drawings, and you see, hey, they get it. It has nothing to do with other demographics. In fact, if you go back to uh, Acts chapter 4 when the church was new and Peter and John were proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and and the the intelligent uh, uh, elite, the scribes, the Pharisees and the Jewish people were saying, who are these guys? They're unschooled, they're uneducated, and yet they've got this understanding spiritually. So God doesn't care about status. In fact, so often somebody who has the lesser education or the lesser standings in society are the the ones who have uh, the sense of need, spiritual need. And Paul recalls how many and most of the Corinthians were really those people. Now, is the reason that Paul brings this up to congratulate the Corinthians on their humility? Is the reason he brings it up to maybe boost their self-image that, you know, those poor Corinthians, 
you know, they come to church and they sit down and they stare at their sandals. Or I need to, I need to really like boost them. No, it doesn't seem that he's impressed by their humility or trying to boost their self-image. In fact, the problem in Corinth that we've seen so far in chapter 1 is pride. It, it, it's pride. They were actually, he knew, not very special in Corinthian society socially, but then it seems like what they tried to do is come to the church and get some kind of status, at least in the church family. Remember chapter 1, verse 12, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Peter. They're claiming status because we follow the right guy, and then there's that group in the corner with that kind of exclusive, super spiritual thing, I am of Jesus, I win. So there was a, a pride problem, actually. So Paul isn't coddling them by pointing out, you guys are just regular people. If anything, he's cutting them down a notch and saying, hey, do you realize that basically you are social nobodies, but God chose you for salvation? So stop playing the, the status game. Where, where do you fit? You know, what level are you? In fact, the previous passage last week, looking at verses 18 to 25, remember Paul reminded them, the message of the cross is foolishness to the world. So you're not going to win any status points claiming the message of the cross. It's a very popular, it's a very unpopular uh, thing to follow Christ. So you're really kind of silly to make that your pursuit of significance, to claim the cross, that you believe Jesus died on that cross and you're putting your faith in Christ for eternal life. That's not going to win you friends or followers or make people choose you for their team. And so now in this passage, now 26 and on, he's basically saying God saved you in spite of your lowest, lower status. All you got going for you is that you threw yourself at the foot of the cross in dependence upon Christ. Keep that mindset. Uh, embrace that you, you're a fail at celebrity status. And so it's kind of a blunt wake-up call when he begins in verse 6, 26 to say, brothers, he's like pleading family. Think of what you were. Don't play the status game. Don't import it into the church. Who's more important in church? Because you weren't wise by world's standards. They weren't waiting for your next blog post. You weren't influential. You're not you know, political candidate material. You're not of noble birth. You don't, you don't have the right address in the gated community. It's okay if some Christians do have those earthly status points. Just realize that Pride is the problem on both sides of the tracks. And you can be sure that, 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 that Paul, who had spent a year and a half in Corinth, understood the pecking order of that particular city, metropolitan port city of Corinth. He knew what was going on, because if you recall in Acts 18, when he went there first to plant the church, uh, he didn't have the financial support to just do that full time. And so he and this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, the three of them, set up in the marketplace and they were uh, either create, uh, 
manufacturing tents or repairing uh, tents and leather goods. And, and so he heard everything going on in the market. He knew how people in his culture, that culture, were thinking about status. And it just grieved Paul that these people who he had introduced to Christ, the humiliation of Jesus on the cross, and they had understood Jesus and put their faith in Jesus, and he had discipled them and they had grown, and now suddenly they were slipping back into being so status conscious. And so the point of this section is basically that God didn't pick you because you were admired by the world. God picked you because you were special to him. Verse 27, God chose the foolish things of the world. That's you. God chose the weak things of the world. God chose the lowly things of the world. Why? Verse 29, so that no one may boast before him. Now, when you, when you read the word chose in these verses, God chose, God chose, God chose. Or in verse 24 of last study and verse 26, you were called. What does that mean? Did God pick us for salvation or did we pick him? Called means that, that God summoned. Come on. Chose means to pick some out of a crowd. So did God pick us to be saved or do we pick God? And if we totally solved that this morning, we would take all the fun away from the theologians who have written volumes over the centuries. But we ask the question too, don't we? In, in, in the, in this, is eternal salvation the result of God's sovereign choice of us or is it the result of man's free will? Because uh, the Bible has verses that teach both. Which leads me to the inevitable conclusion that both are true. Whether my finite mind can uh, wrap my mind around that or not, both are true. God chose us to be saved, it says. Romans 8.30, those he predestined, he called, and those he called, he justified, made righteous, and those he justified, he also glorified. So the plan of God is, is his, his choice. But before you give all the points and, and, and cheer for the sovereignty-only side, go back to chapter 1, verse 21, the last part of that verse from last week. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save who? Those who believe. We have to believe. We have to choose. In fact, we uh, emphasize that simple step of faith that we choose to believe and then we have eternal life. In fact, we still have the handouts at the back table if you're interested. Some uh, six pages, 68 verses, just a selection of the New Testament of faith or believe is the choice we must make to put our faith in Christ who died for our sins. Clearly, we choose. He chose, we choose. It has to be both, and we have to be humble enough to say, I don't know exactly how that works. I just know it's true. Maybe a simple or silly human illustration. In 1977, I chose to propose to a uh, pretty dark-haired 19-year-old girl out on the 
their driveway, leaning against my 1972 Ford Grand Torino. Moonlit and I, we've always liked full moons uh, ever since. But um, I chose her. And I chose to buy the ring, and I chose that night uh, to propose. And so I said, will you marry me? And she said, sure. That's actually what she said, <laughs> and pretty much how she said it, because clearly I had, uh, I had not clearly built this thing up enough. Because I didn't go down on one knee, don't hate me, that wasn't really a big thing back then. And I didn't have a little table with you know, a long stem rose and a videographer in the bushes. I was just saying, will you marry me? And, and she was thinking, yeah, I don't know, we've talked about this, sure. <laughs> and I pulled out the little case with the ring. and Then she caught on that my intentions were, the ring said, I'm choosing you, and she said, sure, which means I'm choosing you. And that's worked out real well for us. We chose each other. Did somebody have to start the choosing? Yeah. I did. I'm old-fashioned. The guy asks, okay. So who started the choosing in our salvation? God. He, he's God, right? He's a lot older than us. And we are chosen from the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, verse 3. It was his idea first, but we must choose him. And, and I don't think we can, we can minimize either of those choices, regardless of how well we understand them. And since Paul is emphasizing the choosing of God, the choosing, God choosing, then, then I think we need to understand that, that side of it. A couple of passages that... I think are beautiful because uh, without apology, God's word puts together his choice and ours. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me, his choice, shall come to me, our choice. Acts 13, 48, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life, God's choice, believed, our choice. Acts 16, 14. A woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, what about her? The Lord, his choice, opened her heart to do what? To respond, her choice, to Paul's message of the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13. God chose you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit. And what else? Faith, our choice. His choice, our choice. They are not contradictory. They are completely complementary truths regardless of our ability to fully understand a choice in both directions. And it seems that what God did here, what Paul did here, was to emphasize God's choice because he's making the point, you have no reason to brag about your salvation. God didn't pick you because you were so great by any world's standards or anything you did. God chose you because he wanted you. So um, if you are a believer in Christ and you know you're going to heaven because you put your faith in him, you need to know how special that is to God. God created this whole universe. He created Adam and Eve, and then he designed all the almost infinite line of couples who had to come together and conceive to create a whole system by which 
your mom and your dad, your biological mom and dad would come together and you would be the result as an eternal being. Only you. You have no need to brag. He created you, who you are, put you where you live, the street, the parents, and you heard the gospel from someone somehow, and you understood what Jesus did, and you put your faith in him. You're special because you are in God's mind forever, which should change the way you view yourself, because you don't have to be at the top of the class. You don't have to be as rich as, as, as someone at the, at the class reunion. It doesn't matter if you ever publish the book, get the promotion, become that person that everybody wants as a friend. God chose you for salvation so that you wouldn't boast about it. So that no one may boast before him. And God chose so many other nobodies for the same privilege. He put you where you were, made you the way you are with your mediocre abilities and your exceptional abilities and those areas of disability. And he called you from Ozaki County, Sheboygan, Milwaukee County, he called me from Marion County, Kansas, a kid on a farm. I, I, as a little kid on the farm, I was, I'd spend my summer days many times with my ball and glove, throwing the ball up against, or up on the roof, catching it and imagining. I was in Little League, so that maybe I could imagine being in the major leagues. But... Uh, my parents were farmers, and we were about 10 miles from town. And there was literally no way that uh, I could get a ride to practice and home from practice every day to be in Little League because every hand was needed on those crucial summer farming days. And so uh, I could just keep throwing the ball up against the roof and catching it or not catching it and imagining I was someone special and playing for the St. Louis Cardinals, my team at the time, and uh, dreaming unrealistic dreams. But God takes little farm boys and God takes you from your childhood dreams and many times he dashes those dreams so that he can surpass your dreams and you would find the privilege of being a son or daughter of God Most High through faith in Christ, so that no one would boast before Him. And so as you, as you look around this room or our church family, you, you, you probably won't see anybody with really celebrity status. I mean, if you knew everybody well, you would find that there are some, you know, people who are very well known in their field, or there are people with, with, with more wealth maybe than you could imagine having, or, or, or have that personality that just seems to attract others that will never happen to you but and God is in no way down on achievement or skills or position because God gifts those he distributes God distributes a lot of talent uh, and privilege and recognition to some of his kids but if someone in the row in front of you or someone in the row behind you has it that's entirely his business and for his purposes 
in Corinth, there was a guy named Gaius who was the host to the church. So he had a house big enough that everybody could, could come at one time. I don't know how big the church was, but obviously he was wealthier than others to have that house, I suppose. But lest we ever think that he chose us so he could like feature us on, on his brochure. No. God chose the weak, the foolish, the lowly, the, the invisible, the nobodies. So after kind of eliminating the earthly status thing, verses 30 and 31, so no one may boast, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So instead of all the false human ideas of status, it is rather because of him, God, that you are, don't read those verses, those two, those terms too quickly, that you are in Christ Jesus. It is, it is Paul's like foundational phrase to describe our status. Our actual status is that we are in Christ or in Christ Jesus. That is the status that matters. You are somebody because you belong to Christ. You, you are somebody because you belong to somebody who's somebody. That's, that's our new status. Jesus, who has become for us wisdom for, from God. Now, if you remember our study last week in verses 18 to 25, there was all this uh, use of the words foolish and wisdom and, 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 and what the world calls foolishness is actually wisdom spiritually and all of that. So kind of after debunking the whole world's view of wisdom in chapter 1, he says, here is wisdom. And the real wisdom of God is those three labels he gives us, righteousness, holiness, and redeemed. Righteous, holy, and redeemed. You want some labels? There are labels worth having. When your status is in Christ, then you want these three labels. Righteous, holy, and redeemed. Righteous. When you put your faith in Christ, the righteousness of Christ goes to your account. You are clothed in his righteous. So that your heavenly account now is stamped righteous. Likewise, you are now considered holy. Remember the second verse of the book called to be holy. We've chosen that as our, as our theme for the book. We are called to be holy. We have been made holy already in heaven, righteousness, but he is in this process of sanctifying us, making us more and more holy. So what, if you wonder what God is doing in your life right now, he is making you more holy. So whatever is going on in your life, the hard things, the good things, he says, I need this to make you more like me. I'm going to use it to shape something, uh, eliminate something, make you trust me in something, because I'm in a process of making you holy. So I'm digging into some corner of your life. Righteous, holy, and this one, redeemed. It's a money word because we were, we were in deep spiritual, financial trouble. We, our sin debt was like getting bigger and bigger. And he says, I'm going, I've redeemed you. I've taken care of that. I paid off the debt. It was finished at the cross. So God's labels are your new labels. Righteous, holy, 
redeemed. And that's why verse 31 says, Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Pastor Nate read these verses in their entirety in our uh, call to worship this morning. God's our only bragging point. This is what the Lord says. Let no man, let no wise man boast of his wisdom, nor let the mighty man boast of his might, nor a rich man boast of his riches. But let the one who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. Do you see that? In other words, everything that we would tend to claim as status in our world, he says, forget it. The only thing you have that's worthy of bragging rights is your relationship to God most high. And you will have that relationship if you put your faith in Christ because you are in Christ Jesus and he has labeled you righteous, holy, and redeemed. Let you boast in the Lord. If you go to a craft show or walk the aisles of the county fair, you can see the, the handiwork, maybe yours or your neighbor's. And you go, wow, that's really great. That's amazing. And as you do, you are pointing to an object, a quilt, a painting, a science fair project. And while you say that is amazing, that's not really what you're saying. Because somewhere on that display will be a name. And that's who's amazing. It's not the craft or the quilt that's amazing. And it's certainly not the raw materials, it's not the paint, it's not the, the canvas, it, uh, the slab of wood, the glue, the whatever. It, it's the name of the one who made it that gets the bragging rights. And so stop boasting about yourself. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And when we begin to do that in this earth where we are horizontally measuring each other all the time, when we begin to do that, we begin to participate in the activity of heaven. Because in heaven, it'll be very clear who gets all the glory, all the bragging rights. And in fact, it'll be very clear that we were saved for that singular purpose, that God would forever show us off, that, we'd be, that people would be walking the aisles of heaven and saying, that one's saved by grace, that one's saved by grace. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. We had nothing going for us. It is by grace you have been saved, unmerited, undeserved. The next verse. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages, that's eternity, heaven, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. No one's bragging in heaven to brag on the Lord that he saved me by his grace. And God will be displaying us proudly as his doing. And God has just, in one fell swoop through the cross and through your salvation, one-upped any, anybody with a blue ribbon, any, anyone who ever hoisted an MVP pro, trophy, or, because he's going to show us off in the eternal ages. So it doesn't matter. If the world considers you wise, influential, or noble, stop pretending you, you are something. You are the least likely, but God has given us, nobody's the privilege of knowing Christ. So, it's not because you were special, Paul said. But then Paul, in the first five verses of chapter 2, addresses himself in the equation. 
because they could begin to think, well, Paul, aren't you pretty great? I mean, you are the church planter. You are our leader. We have a whole fan club at our, at our church devoted to you. You're the apostle, the healer, the preacher, the demon caster. You raised Eutychus from the dead when he, when he fell. Aren't you a worthy hero? Well, what we find in the first five verses of, of, of chapter 2 is that Paul just continues to say, not only are we saved in spite of being the least likely, God actually uses the least likely to lead people to salvation in Christ. God's looking for the least likely people to use. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. It wasn't me that was impressive, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with trembling. Did you know that? My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Paul is saying, I'm just being honest, I am nothing special as a speaker. Do you remember two weeks ago we were looking at two places in 2 Corinthians, the next letter, he wrote them, where he acknowledges, I'm I'm not an exceptional speaker, and, and, and people are saying that about me, that's fine. It's probably true, he says. You weren't impressed with me. So Paul is, Paul's writing this five years after he was there. And uh, he says, think back when I came and, and, and told you about Christ dying on the cross. You were not impressed with me. I resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You were struck with the reality that God sent his son who paid for your sins on the cross. And if you put your faith in him, you could have eternal life in heaven. That's what struck you. For those with Jewish heritage that Paul spoke to in Corinth, they would have known that that God, they knew from the Old Testament, created the whole universe. They would have known that he gave uh, Moses and the people of Israel deliverance from the Egyptians. He would have known, they would have known that he gave them amazing, mighty, holy law that would guide them. They would have known that uh, God would send fire. God sent fire to consume Elijah's sacrifice and to free Daniel from the lion's den. So they had this great, big view of God. And then to learn that God came to earth. God sent his son to earth as a, as a, as a helpless, swaddling, clothed baby. The diaper stage, the babbling words of a child learning to speak. Enduring adolescence, hitting his thumb with a mallet in Joseph's dusty woodshop. Just like us. But then God declared him to be, revealed him to be his own beloved son. And Jesus proceeded to go among the people for three plus years doing miracles only God could do. Uh, Saying things revealing truth about sin and salvation that only God could expose as true. They were convinced. Many were convinced. Many believed. He loved people no one else could love. And then he said he saved you because this one 
who was the mighty one who came and humbled himself to the cross was slandered and criticized and eventually crucified on the cross. And on that cross, this mighty eternal transition, uh, transaction took place, which is the hinge of history that all of sins of all mankind on both sides in time were placed upon Jesus. And God punished Jesus instead of you. And you heard that message and you believed. And he says, when I came to you, you were totally impressed with God. You walked away from conversations that we had on the streets where you brought your tent in for repair and you weren't thinking about the guy that told you about Jesus. You were thinking about Jesus, the guy told you about. I came to you in weakness, fear, and trembling. When, when you think of Paul, we don't usually think of him as weak, fearful, and trembling, do we? I mean, just as you've read Scripture, if you've, if you've read the New Testament... And you think of Paul. Don't you kind of think of Paul like declaring the truth? But this, is, this is not just him being modest. This is him being real. I came to you weakness, fear, and trembling. And so if you're thinking of this bold orator, you got the wrong video. That's, that's TV, Paul. Real Paul trembled. So it's okay if we tremble. Because it frankly is scary talking to people about Jesus sometimes. Because it's like, why are you talking about that? That's not, that's not something we can see or, or know. or it, it can make us feel awkward. And so Paul says, I get it. You don't win friends that way. Paul trembled. It's okay that it takes, in fact, it's good that it takes prayerful courage to to. Share something spiritually with your neighbor to reveal who you are spiritually, to invite them uh, to your place, maybe, to get to know them, to invite them maybe to church or some other gospel-centered event. And it's okay if you tremble. Paul did, and we're learning that the power belongs to God, which is his point, verse 4 and 5. My message and my preaching were not wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. The Spirit's power. Only God, by His Spirit, can save. It's interesting, even Jesus said, this is the way it's going to work when I'm gone. It's going to be the Spirit who does the work of salvation. Jesus, before He went to the cross that night, it is to your advantage that I, Jesus, go away. I'm going to die, rise, ascend to heaven. He tells his disciples, it's, it's to your advantage because if I did not go away, the helper, Holy Spirit, would not, would not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, and he did, Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, when he, the Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they don't believe in me. So the only way people are going to come to believe is if they are convinced that they are sinners and they are facing the righteous, holy judgment of God. It's not our job to convince them of that, but it is our job to tell them that. But the Spirit will do that work. Sometimes if, if, if they are they're so impressed by how we shared, it could actually distract them from the gospel. But, it, but sometimes we just, in our own stumbling ways, and boy, that conversation didn't go the way I wanted to, and they asked me questions I didn't know how to answer, but, but then you said, but... I'll find out for you. Let's talk again. 
And so you talk again, and, and they come to faith in Christ not because of you, but because of the Spirit's power. I did not come to you with persuasive, wise words. Paul knew and acknowledged uh, in 2 Corinthians that Apollos was a, was a really good speaker and, and good for him, good for the Corinthians, but Paul said, it's okay that I'm not. God designed me. Paul said, exactly the way I am. And he said, perfect. I'll use you with some of your mediocre abilities to jumpstart the Great Commission so that now, 2,000 years later, we are still depending on the foundation of Paul taking that gospel to the ends of the earth. I'll use you for that, and I'll use you to, to, to give, you, give the world 13, that's the most books of the Bible anybody wrote, and I'll use you for that. Perfect. Because I know who you are, and it's going to be the credit to the, the Spirit's power. Why? Verse 5, so that your faith... The Corinthians' faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. There's, there's been two real significant um, verses in our passage that, use the, that explain what God's reasoning is. That's what, we're, that's what the Bible's about, is to understand God and how he thinks. And so back in chapter 1, verse 29, he says that God chose you regardless of your, your status. Why? So that no one may boast before him. Now he says, not only does God choose the least likely so that God gets the credit, God uses the least likely. Why? So that, verse 5, your faith might rest, not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. God's, Paul says, I'm no great salvation salesman. You know how you often feel with pushy salesmen? They feel like you've been forced into buying something you didn't really want. And so God doesn't need our brilliant arguments. He just needs people with a love for Christ who share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Simply, clearly, clearly, he was crucified for our sins. He rose again. We put our faith in Christ alone. He just needs commoners like us. So you and I are exactly the people that God can use. Uh, you are someone's best chance at understanding the gospel. Because you work in the next cubicle, you live across the hall or across the street, you are this, the uncle, the cousin, the sister, you are exactly right. You don't have to be somebody. You don't have to be educated, you don't have to be trained, you don't have to be a pastor, you don't have to be a missionary. You are their friend. It, it's often been, been my privilege to meet people in this building who are interested in the gospel of Jesus Christ, not because they ever heard of me, but because you are their friend. And that's why they come to faith in Christ. And so we're supposed to be in awe that this salvation upon which our eternity rests is God's work from start to finish. It's the Spirit who begins to work in the heart of a person. And they begin to think about spiritual things. It's the Spirit who then works in us who know spiritual things, know the truth. And we begin to notice them and we begin to pray for them. 
And then the Spirit begins to show us because we're open and receptive and willing to, to, to push past our fear and trembling and, and we begin to grow this relationship. And we begin to have conversations with them and the Spirit somehow in those conversations uses all of our bumbling words and, 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 and we get out the gospel of Jesus Christ or maybe it's over months and years of, of conversations and relationships that we, we talk with them and, or we invite them to something or invite them to church and, and we get to share the gospel. And then it is the Spirit and only the Spirit who can actually convince their own heart, not based on us now. We were, this, we were this channel that God used, this tool that God used. But God then convinces them that his word is true about what Jesus did and what they must do in response to believe in him. And they come to faith in Christ. And the result of that process is that God gets all the glory and it's just a privilege of us nobodies to connect them to that truth. Just like... God connected us to that truth in some way already. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are amazed at your great plan and that the greatest thing you are doing on earth right now is nothing we're reading on the front pages or the news feed. But the greatest thing you are doing on earth right now is calling people, summoning them, awakening their hearts to their spiritual need. And you are, you are working around the globe and around uh, our communities. And you are working right now around us and, and our web of relationships, calling people to yourself. Help us to be faithful, to, to embrace the, the privilege it is as a nobody, sharing the gospel with nobody special, just the regular people of our life. And, and, and realizing that we are engaged in a supernatural, amazing process for which you will get the glory and someday we will be praising you for what you did. In Jesus' name, amen.